to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 7 to 13. If you're able to, uh, go ahead and let's stand. And I'm going to read this for us. If uh, you're looking for Matthew, go about two-thirds, three-quarters of the way uh, back into the Bible. There's also a table of contents at the beginning. I hope you find it. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, that's on page 811. 811. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. As we read, remember, we're reading God's Word. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Well, hey, my name's Josh. I lead students here. Occasionally I get to preach. Usually it's when Luke's gone. Luke, like he said, had a busy week doing leadership stuff, so you get me. Hopefully you enjoy it. It's God's word, so I've enjoyed uh, studying it. We are in the middle of a series, four weeks of Advent, Return of the King. Normally, if you've been at Redemption any sort of time, we just get into a book of the Bible and we plow through until we get out of it. This has been a change up for us. Return of the King, we've been kind of taking different passages from all over the Bible, talking about the return of Jesus Christ here on earth. So just to recap, especially if this is your first time, here's kind of where we've been so far. Week one, Luke taught through the kingdom is near. This is where he had the YouTube video of heaven and earth becoming one. God and his people existing together. That's what heaven on earth is. We're not looking to shoot off to heaven and be some fat little angel baby. We're looking for heaven to come down here on earth, right here, right now, and live with God forever on earth. And then last week, Luke preached out of John 18. His is the kingdom. Who's the king? Jesus. What's it look like? It looks like lordship and obedience. And then this week, I'm going to unpack for us, Thy Kingdom Come. And next week, Luke will preach out of my favorite passage of Revelation, The Forever Kingdom. What does forever look like? I sing with my middle son, Amazing Grace, almost every night. Sing God me, Dad. Okay, I'd love to. Beautiful, right? And the 10,000 years. Can you fathom 10,000 years? If you can't, come back next week because Luke's going to explain what it looks like. It's the forever kingdom. But for now, what does it look like for that forever kingdom to come here right now? Just curious, raise your hand if you've ever heard your kingdom come or thy kingdom come in your life. It's like a religious phrase a ton of us have heard. I heard it a ton growing up. I grew up Catholic, not a great Catholic. My nana was an amazing Catholic. She used to make rosaries. Those are the necklaces they pray for prisoners and send them to all over the world. And I'd be at her house as she was making rosaries, and she'd teach me how to pray the rosary. And one of the prayers you have to do is, Our Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. And I would say that prayer over and over and over again. And I didn't know what it meant because I wasn't a believer. And then I became a believer, and I've never really prayed the thy kingdom come part because I don't know what that really means either. And then we started singing this song a couple weeks ago that I never heard, Oh, great God, give us rest. Oh, great God, do your best. Have you seen this place? It's all a mess. I've done my part, I must confess. Oh, great God, do your best. 
And Luke wrote a blog, I guess last week sometime, and he said, that is essentially the Lord's Prayer. God, do your best. Your kingdom, come here. Now, please. God, we need your best now. And the light bulb went off. That's what I've been praying this whole time. This world is a mess. I'm a mess. Y'all are a mess. We're a mess. What do we need? God, do your best. That's what we're doing. So here would be my just pastor's goal in all this. When you pray, God, your kingdom come from here on out, you'd have something in your head that actually made sense. And it wasn't just this religious lofty thing you threw up, but you really earnestly knew what you were asking for. So I'm going to break it off into two things today. Uh, specifically, we're going to ask God to do his best in this world because it is a mess. Amen? God, also do your best in our hearts because we're all a mess. Amen? That's what the Lord's Prayer is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, your kingdom come. This place is a mess. Fix it. We need your best. I'm a mess. Fix me. Do your best. That's what I've been praying that's what the Lord's Prayer is after. That's why Jesus gave us that prayer. It's funny. The Lord's, not funny. The Lord's Prayer starts with, hallowed be your name. And then it says, thy kingdom come. That's the transition in the prayer where we start asking God to intervene in our lives. And the way he asks us to pray is to say, kingdom come. He doesn't say, start with your financial needs. Start with God's kingdom come down. Not magic genie show up. Kingdom come. So that's where I, let me just read it again so we know what we're looking at. Middle of verse 9 then. Here's what Jesus said. It's the greatest prayer in all the Bible. It is the prayer of prayers. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, see, we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, your kingdom come. So first off, when we pray that, here's what we're asking. God, we want your kingdom to come into this world. It is a mess. It is full of poverty and suffering and injustice and death and just evil all around. If you will, would you flip back in your Bible? Usually we show it on the screen, but it's a long. Go to Isaiah 65 for me. Go to page 624 if you have one of our Bibles. I just want to look at a passage. This, this cry of God to come and fix stuff has been the cry from the beginning. This world is a mess. Isaiah 65 paints what the picture should look like and will look like in the future here. Isaiah 65, verse 17. So this is Isaiah preaching to his church. Here's what God can do and will do in this earth. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Wouldn't it be nice to forget all the bad? That day's coming. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. One day all will know is joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more crying. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Death will be no more. There will be no more miscarriages and funerals for little people. This day is coming. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the, like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. The complete opposite of Genesis 3 saying your work's going to be toil and thorns. You're going to enjoy your work for a long time. Verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. Here's the question. How much of this picture of the future is real right here, right now? Some of it. Some of you know gladness like you've, gladness like you've never known before because you met Jesus. Some of you have prayed that God would keep your babies healthy, and he answered. Some of you prayed that same thing, and he didn't. So some of this is true. Some of this is not true. So when we say, God, your kingdom come, what are we asking? I broke it into two things. We're asking God to do what he can do. And asking God to do what he for sure will do. When I say, God, what he can do, I don't imply there's something he can't do. God, I know you're limited up there. I know that Satan snuck that one by you and Adam and Eve. I know you're, you're kind of old and senile and you, you don't got it all figured out. God, you can do anything. Health problems in this church could be done. Financial ruin in this church, done. He could do it. He could make me taller. <laughs> My whole life I thought I was going to be six foot. Why, I don't know. But he could do that. He can do anything. So we're asking God, do what you can do. We're praying for this. In preparing for this, I googled, what are the biggest problems in the world? Luke's been teaching through this, and he says, I don't need to talk about all the problems. You know it. Let me just remind you to kind of bring you down a few notches. European Union people were surveyed. They said, what are the biggest problems? Nuclear weapons. All the armed conflicts, infectious diseases. I just read that apparently antibiotics might stop working. Holy smokes. Shortage of energy, terrorism, the economy, poverty, hunger, lack of drinking water for people. Well, that's Europe. They're Europeans. America, doing any better. Got Ferguson, Eric Garner, all sorts of tension in the systems we've created that are not the way they should be. ALS, six months ago, we all dumped water on our head. There's still no cure. Not saying stop, but the problems are still here. Bring home our girls. We start to forget, like eight months ago, we were asking to bring home the girls from Africa who were kidnapped. Foster crisis in Arizona. We just heard from her. 19,000 kids in the foster system. We got group homes right in our neighborhoods full of teenage boys and girls who will graduate from high school, turn 18, be given a bag, say la vie, have a nice life, without any sort of relational structure in their life. Abortion. 
is epidemic. Can't tell you how many college buddies of mine paid for abortions. Some for multiple women. That's wrong. God, kingdom, come now. This place is wrong. You can end abortion. God, you can. Do it. You can fix marriages. Do it. Do your best. That's what we're praying. You feel the tension there? You're asking for something that is so out of your control. But that's what we're asking for. That's what we're pleading for. And God answers. God can do stuff. Martin Luther King prayed, God, I see a different world than the one I'm currently involved in. Has his dream come to reality? Obama is president. When Obama first came into office, I was teaching inner city in Texas. Taught mostly black teenagers. And we watched the inauguration. I cried because I looked at those students. This has never happened in their life or their parents' life or their grandparents' life. The top of the American totem pole is achievable by people with different skin than me now. Martin Luther King would say, Amen. And then I would drive home to my apartment through a neighborhood called Como. I'd drive across Bryant Irvin, a road, and I'd go to my apartment, Cumberland at Ridgely. Why do I tell you this? Ridgely is a country club area. Como is an all-black neighborhood. There's a brick wall fence that's kind of torn out that goes all the way down Brian Irvin, separating Como from the Ridgely area. These are the black servants that used to serve the white people in the country club who still live there with mostly white still over here. Martin Luther King's dream was bigger than what we currently see. God, your kingdom come. That's what we're praying. It's passionate. On an individual basis, I asked my mentors who work with students the other day, what's, what's your dream? And one of the guys said, I just picture the day I get to baptize my boy. That's amazing. That's what we're praying for, that our kids would know Jesus. And maybe he'd like me enough to let me baptize him. Can God do all of that? Yes. How does he start to do it? A bunch of humble people say, God, do your best. Your kingdom come. It's better than what this world offers. That's what we're praying for. But we don't stop there. We're not just asking for God to do what he can do and potentially fix this and bring racial tension to an end. We are praying for God and what he will do absolutely. The book of Revelation, some of you may like it, some of you maybe have never read it. It's crazy. You read it, and there's dragons coming down to earth and fireballs and all sorts of Armageddon imagery. It's the picture of the end of the world. And then it's a heavenly city come down to earth to be with his people. Jesus is the king in heaven and earth together forever. John wrote that book because Jesus took him out in the wilderness and said, Here, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. And John writes down, Dragon, got it? New heaven, new earth, got it? And he writes it all down. What does John not say at the end of the book of Revelation? People used to ask me all the time, Are you, are you ready for Jesus to come back? No. I'd like a wife first. Here, having one of those is nice. And like a job that pays more than my part-time job and like a truck, I'd like to kill an elk before I die, and I'd like some boys, and John never says, Jesus, 
can you hold on a second? I've got some earthly dreams I'd like to see planned out. At the end of Revelation, John says this, Maranatha, which means come back, Jesus, now. That's all he says, because he saw what we're going to get. He saw what we have, and he said, that one, come now. That's what we pray for, passionately, because we see this world for what it is. It ain't right. God, I know what you can do, and I know what you will do, and I am praying for both to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? That's what we're praying for. Now, here's what's great. I could end right there. I could start a movement right now with some cause I bring to the... Let's fix. Here's the problem. What's missing in bringing the kingdom here on earth to fix all the problems out there? My heart happens to be the biggest issue in my life. One pastor in the area likes to ask people when he sits down with them. So tell me, what's your biggest problem? How much time do you have? My wife, for starters. Let me tell you about her. My kids, have you seen them? My in-laws, holy smokes, you got some time? My job, my boss, my church, my pastor, this goofy youth guy preached. I could go on and on. No one ever says... Well, pride, got a greedy heart. I'm the most selfish man I know. I generally just don't care about other people. It's all out there. And Jesus says the kingdom needs to come out there, and it sure needs to come in our hearts just as much, if not more. So we are asking for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven and come here in our hearts as they will be in heaven. Where do we want to see this? Let's flip to another Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17. And unpack what I mean by God's kingdom coming into our hearts. Deuteronomy 17. It's page 161 if you're borrowing one of our Bibles. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 17. So Deuteronomy is Moses writing. Here's the context of what's going on in history. There's no kingdom yet. There's earthly kingdoms. There's the Egyptian kingdom. There's the Pharaoh. God's people don't have a kingdom yet. They have a theocracy. They are God's people governed by God through the person of Moses and the priests. And God sees them and they say they're going to want to be like everyone else with a government like everyone else. Here's the type of kingdom I'm going to set up for them. They don't even know what I'm talking about yet, but I'm going to give them rules for their kingdom, specifically for the heart of the kings that will be over them. And here's what God is after in his kingdom and his kings who will rule. Verse 14, he says, When you come to the land that your, Lord, your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So God's saying, you're going to want a king. I'm going to give it to you. Let me tell you how I'm going to pick one. One from among your brothers who you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then he gives three requirements. All directed towards the king's heart. Verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. 
since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He can't be going after lots of stuff, specifically the kingly stuff that puffs him up. Next verse, 17. And he shall not acquire many wise for himself, lest his heart turn away. He can't do the kingdoms like the kingdoms of the earth are done, where it's just man who's power hungry and pulls all these women in and just uses them and abuses them. This king's not going to use women that way. And specifically, those women are just going to draw your hearts away. Solomon basically split the kingdom because he had too many wives pulling his religious affections in different directions. You're not going to get lots of horses. You're not going to get lots of ladies, king. And then lastly, he says this. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. My favorite preacher in Texas says, men, here's your requirements by God. You don't go after glory. You don't go after girls. And you don't go after gold. Your heart is after the Lord. This was written a long time ago. Yes? Tim Keller, who lives right here, right now in New York, wrote a book recently called Counterfeit Gods. He said, here's all the empty promises that we go after, specifically as a Western civilization. And he said, we go after success, glory. We go after relationships and sex, girls. And we go after money, gold. Nothing has ever changed in the human heart from beginning until now. Our hearts are twisted and wrong. We like to say this church, we are gospel-centered. What does that mean? It means we want the gospel at the center. So what we're implying in that is by default, the gospel is not at the center of our hearts. What's at the center? Warnings to the kings tells us success relationships used incorrectly, money. We have, you know, lots of people like to say, I put Jesus on the top of my list. That's kind of a weak way to view what God's after in your heart. Think of a solar system. What's the center of the solar system? The sun, good job. You got the sun, then you got all these planets, and then around these planets, you got, you got all these things orbiting, but there's one center. And what the kings are being warned about is your center is going to be something other than God. And if you are a non-Christian, there is something at the center of what drives you and motivates you, and it's not God. And Christian, you have Jesus at the center. He's just kind of smaller than he should be right now. And there's other stuff that are pulling for your attention. Our hearts are the issue. God is not creating a people to go be nice in a mean world. He is creating a new people, a new kingdom where hearts are now correct. Augustine says this, your hearts are not rightly ordered. We all have these affections, they're just jumbled up. Gold, glory, girls. Young men, stay away from gold, glory, girls. Pursue Jesus. We're going to just walk through these now. We're going to go through success relationships, and money. And my goal is simple. Make you feel really bad about yourself. <laughs> and then give you the Bible solution to the mess in your life. So what does success look like? What does it look like as an idol? Well, I went to one of the top theologians of the day. Miss, she's like 98 years old now or something. Madonna. <laughs> Let's see what she has to say. She's more successful than all of us, we'd agree? I'd agree. I mean, I was a great high school math teacher, but I think she's reached a higher level than what I reached. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. 
That's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Madonna, who is far better success-wise than all of us, says, my drive, my center, my sun, and my solar system is the desire to be somebody, and I've never attained it. Our hearts are not rightly ordered. Bring it home to a real-world example in our life. None of us are ever going to be Madonna. Here's what Tim Keller says about the, the current culture of parenting and family rearing. From the earliest years, an alliance of parents and schools creates a pressure cooker of competition designed to produce students who excel in everything. Brooks calls this a ma massive organic apparatus. Mighty Achievatron, if he was a superhero. The family is no longer what Christopher Latch once called a haven in a heartless world, a counterbalance to the dog-eat-dog -dog areas of life. Instead, the family has become the nursery where the craving for success is first cultivated. We want to be successful and glorious and mighty. Madonna wants it. I want it. Tim Keller wants it. That's what comes our, into our center. It's sad, but it's true. So, I mean, student ministry here, we've kind of gone different places. I saw this early. It was probably my fourth month into this. We were meeting in the lobby. It was, I don't know, 30 kids. And there was a day where everyone was sick, and it was less than 30 down. And I just walked around sulking. I lead a student ministry of like 24 kids. <laughs> Who ever thinks about how many students are in my student ministry? Aubrey doesn't care. The kids don't care. They're just there to, because of the relationships. Who cares? I care because I think I'm becoming somebody. We want success, every single one of us. That's good. Work hard, drive hard. Make sure your solar system is set up the way it should be. Let's go through some questions to start to wipe some smiles off your faces. Heart check. How are you doing in the idol of success? First, how do you view success? Just in general, what is it that's success in your life? Body image, success of your kids, the clean and nice tidiness of your children. What is it that makes you successful? Everyone has a definition. Figure out what yours is. In what area of life are you still striving to be somebody? You didn't have a dad. You're just longing for the day when your dad is going to say, it's my boy. For your boss to look at you and say, great job. For your husband to just really finally understand how hard you work. What do you want your reputation to be? Again, Christianity is not about just making nice people. New people change from the insides. The kingdom has come. Our desire for reputation is now shifted. Next one. How good does your life look online? I don't know if this is an older generation, probably mostly the younger generation. Like moms, if, we, if I just scanned your Instagram, are you just amazing in my eyes? Can you handle anything? Are you the doctor of the family who gives your own vaccines and teaches every kid and just change the brakes on your minivan and just bake cookies all while doing a devotional? <laughs> Seriously, me and my wife had, 
we just realized the other day, we try to find cute things about our family and then post it. So I've just kind of taken a break because I, I my heart was getting twisted. I want people to look in Josh and that's a cool dad. Look how he plays with his boys. That's, that's my kind of dad right there. It's false praise. That's, that's an idol. That's wrong. This all ties it together. Who are you trying to impress? I mean, there's an answer to that question. If you dig down deep enough. Who are you trying to impress? Let's go to the next round. You guys feel good about yourselves? <laughs> Let's talk about relationships. Can relationships be an idol? Yes. Are relationships good? Yes. How do you balance that? You constantly evaluate your life and what's getting out of whack. God said it's very good when man and woman are together. Me, personally, that played out my life into idolatry. I come from a broken home. Aubrey comes from some broken relationships. We got married, and I was white-knuckling it. I'm going to make this the best marriage anyone has ever seen. People are going to look at those two and say, what a mate, what a mate. And we were like three years into marriage, like, I just realized my whole world is centering around this marriage. That ain't the core. And I told Aubrey, Aubrey, we need to talk. You are going to be dead one day. She's like, (laughs) and I might remarry someone and live with another woman. Vice versa, I could be dead. My point was, this is such a temporary thing. I want it to last till the very end, and we're going to go hard into eternity together, hopefully. But it's a temporary relationship covenant that God has given us to enjoy within the realm of all the other things going on. It is not the sun of the solar system. And we both just kind of breathe, and it got better because we got that out of the center. It didn't belong there. We all have relationship idols. C.S. Lewis says this, most people, if they really, 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 he doesn't say that many reallys, but that's what he means, looked into their own hearts, they would know this, that what they're seeking for in this life and specifically in relationships can't be met by stuff or people in this world. Meaning, Aubrey is married to me. God bless her. I have this much finite resources and emotional capacity and whatever to love her well with. What she desires is something beyond my finite ability in a man. Everyone gets all your needs met in Jesus. He just kind of graciously gives us some gifts of people to help kind of fill the gaps. Kind of like putty in a wall after you've taken a picture off. We just fill a tiny little hole. Jesus is the whole thing. Let's talk through this one a little. We'll just go straight for the jugular. How's your marriage? Luke said it's kind of the tense time of Christmas, lots going on. Like within that, look at your marriage, how's it doing? Don't answer. Are you looking at pornography? I know that seems kind of out of place, but it's right where it needs to be. Because here's the reality of pornography. It's not really a visual thing. Like that woman is visually appealing to me. Yes, that's true. It's a relationship thing. Because all relationships that we're supposed to be in are us pouring ourselves out for the good of others. Pornography is that woman on that screen pouring herself out for the good of me without me giving anything in return. That's idolatry. It's a problem. Next one. What do your children need from you right now? Like spiritually, emotionally, what just what do they need? Where are they struggling? What do you know that? Are you always on that pulse in your family? 
Are you always talking with your spouse? Hey, I think she really needs this. She's really, I see a lot, of, a lot of depression going on. I don't know if it's school or let's, let's get on this. Next one. This is a great question. I came up with it. <laughs> Who can depend on you right now without any hesitation? Just in your life, you will be there. You have a, you have a list of people a circle of people who could depend on you right now without hesitation? If not, you probably see people as a way to serve you and bolster your reputation and success. You still feeling good? Let's get to the money aspect now. What about money? This was clear as day. Jesus said, if you want to see a man's heart, just go look at his checkbook. He says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. So this goes right to the heart of it. This is the question of if the kingdom of God is really taking root in your heart. Let's go to some questions here. First one, again, right for it. Are you in debt and why? Again, you're not going to feel good. Maybe another five minutes will bring you some good news. But your financial life, is it a mess? Not like, oh, I have a mortgage. Typical kind of debt that we're used to. Like debt on debt on debt. Next one. When will you have enough money? Just a question. Is it the next 10,000? Is it next year's raise that will be the moment where you have arrived and your heart can rest and money will be removed from the center of your being? When's enough? Next one. Are you giving regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully? If not, it's just a picture of something else going on. The money's not the issue. It's paper and metal, whatever they're made out of. It's, it's, that's not the issue. We all know that. It's something in here. Next one. Are your finances causing strife in your relationships? And the last one. Are you acutely, this one's me, are you acutely aware when you are not comfortable? I know it doesn't seem money related, but it just has to do with you're the king of your kingdom and you want to be comfortable in your chair and have everyone else serve you. And you're aware when that's not happening. That's an idol. Have a nice day. <laughs> What's the answer? Any church, any synagogue, any Mormon temple, anyone could bring these issues to bear. This isn't unique to Christ. This is the issue of the human heart. The question now is, what is the answer? Andrew Carnegie made a lot of money. Way back when, he looked at his life early on and he thought, the idol of money and wealth is an issue. I need to address this. And here's the answer he gave for his life. He said, I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing years, I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. He saw the issue. He saw that the solar system of his heart was drawn towards money. And he said, here's my answer. I will stop working at 35 and pursue character like Plato in a room reading books. Is that the answer that we have to give you as a gospel-centered church? Let me tell you what Jesus says. He's a lot more simple. He says this, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? What do they get? For theirs is the kingdom of God. Christianity starts with this. I can't. Every other self-help, every other religion says, yes, you can. Let me show you how. Here's a pamphlet. I'm telling you, you can't. 
I can't. The idol of Aubrey as my wife is only removed by God. How is it removed? How do you, how do you get that idol out of there? God gave me a nice little picture the other day. I drive home and I kind of just daydream, listen to country music and dream of situations where I'm awesome. <laughs> Don't laugh, everyone does it. So it's like, now that I have kids, it's like, oh, Roman's going to be the stud wrestler, and he's going to be a state champion, and, and then he points to me in the stands, yeah, this is all you, and then everyone looks at me, and I'm like, oh, no, shucks, shucks. <laughs> all the time, I'm this hero in this story. It could be the most random story, and I pop up as the hero somehow. <laughs> Look at Josh, here he comes again, yeah! I'm not the hero of the story. I was thinking through an illustration to use in this message, and God spoke to me very clearly. It was a Braveheart, Braveheart. Love the movie. Favorite movie of all time. And God said, Josh, you are not William Wallace. He's the hero. He's the one who dies so others get freedom. I am Robert the Bruce, the coward, the one who sent him there, the one who was so scared to go fight and do the right thing and never did the right thing because my heart was twisted. I am Robert the Bruce. So are you. And we look to William Wallace, Jesus Christ. That's the only way idols get removed. You can walk here and say, that was cute, but I got a bad answer. I can, and I will fix my life. Good luck. Till you look off yourself and you see yourself like me for the first time as Robert the Bruce, the chump of the movie, who gets everything while William dies. That's Christianity. I can't. Say it with me. I can't. I can't can't. God, your kingdom, come here, come now. Let's pray. Father, we spend a lot of our life, a lot of our energy, a lot of our thoughts, a lot of our emotions thinking about how we can fix stuff and become a hero in the imaginary story of our life. God, forgive us of that. Let us be people who earnestly pray, your kingdom come. People who honestly and sincerely want you to do your best in our lives and in our world and watch you get the credit for it so we can say hallowed be your name god do your best here there's a lot of issues within these walls do your best let's be a people who say i can't but i'll look to jesus who did it's in christ's name we pray amen